We've been going through 1 John um, for a number of weeks, and I think like eight weeks uh, going through 1 John. And, and I hope you are seeing at, at this point that John writes very differently than Paul. Paul writes very linearly. He, he, he's making a point. He's making an argument. He goes from, from one point to another to another. He's making a logical connection to a conclusion. John, on the other hand, writes very conversationally. He's writing like a, a father talking to a son. He even calls the church children. He was older at this point in his age, and he probably thought of himself as a father figure to the church he's writing to. And as a father would talk to a son, he restates a few points over and over and over again to try to get, get the, the main points across. And so he writes in a, a circular type of way, where he writes, uh, uh, he writes a, and restates what he's writing over and over again. And today we're going to be, be starting a new circle, a new circle. And so it's going to get repetitive as we go through First John. We're going to be hitting the same subjects over and over and over again. And it's probably because we need to hear these subjects over and over and over again. So if you would, look at verse 28 with me. It says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Verse, first two words in verse 28 are, And now. This gives us a clue that this is a new uh, section that's going on. And I know chapter 3 starts in, in two verses, but, but the chapters and verses came way after um, this letter was written. And originally, uh, there was no chapter or verses. Those were just to help us find different places in Scripture. Uh, the, the words and now give us a clue that we're making a transition into a new thought. And that's how verse 28 acts as a transition into a new thought. A, transi- a transition from a concern about false teaching to a concern about the children of God. Look at verse 28. It says, And now, little children... The first two chapters of 1 John really focus on our fellowship with God. From chapter 3 on, John really focuses on our sonship of God. Those who are saved are sons and daughters of God. And so there's three main points that I want to go over this morning. Actually, three main points of the sermon, but we're only going to be able to make it through two of the points. We'll, we'll hit the third point next week. Uh, the three points are this, the righteousness of God, the children of God, and the children of the devil. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle that third point next week, but let's look at this first point, the righteousness of God. Look at verse 28 again. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Look at that verse 29 again. There's a phrase in there that I want to point out. That is, he is righteous. He is righteous. The righteousness of God, which, which means, the righteousness of God means this. God is in perfect conformity to his very nature that he is holy. God is perfectly holy and righteous. And there's a sense when you hear that, that that should bring some fear to our hearts. Because the Bible makes clear that, that a holy and righteous God 
demands holiness and righteousness of his people who are, who are rightly related to him. If we are going to be in fellowship. And look what John, John's already made this point in 1 John 1, 5. This is what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him. In other words, John's saying, this is what we've heard from Jesus and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, which means that God reveals, but, but it also means that God is pure, that God is holy. God doesn't associate or fellowship with, with evil or sin or darkness at all. How can we then, as sinners, have a relationship with a righteous and holy God? When we're not, when we're sinners. From Genesis 3 on, this has been man's great dilemma. God is light, he is righteous, he is holy, and we are not. We are sinners. We are rebels. But listen to what John says in verse 28. It says this in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide. Remember that word means stay or remain or even find your rest. Stay in him. How, John? How could that be? How can we abide in Christ when we are sinners? How can we have fellowship with God when he is righteous? This is man's great dilemma, and, and, and for sure, we need God. We need God. But there's a separation between us and God, which reminds me of a story, a historical story, a true story. We, we are called Protestants. I don't know if we all know this, because our heritage goes back to the 16th century, where, we're, where a big portion of the church protested, that's where we get the name Protestants from, protested against the Catholic Church. Eventually, the, the, the protesters or the Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church, but right from the beginning, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to reform the church. And that's where we get the name Reformation, which happened in the 16th century, or the, the Reformers, men that were trying to reform the church. You might even hear Reformed theology be used a lot that, that just means that those are people, Reformed theology, are people that hold closely to the theology of the Reformers from the 16th century. And out of all the Reformers, the Protestant Reformation, there is one man who stands out as by far the most famous, and, and most people think he single-handedly started the Protestant Reformation, which is probably not 100% accurate. There was many men that kind of set the stage for this man to come, but he definitely took center stage. And of course, this man's name was Martin Luther. God used this man to bring change not only to the church and to Christianity, but he completely changed Western civilization. He arguably could be one of the most influential men in all of Western civilization. Let me just give a testimony of how influential this man is. We all know Martin Luther King Jr., right? The, the, the civil rights activist from the 60s, I think 1960s. Um, wasn't originally named Martin Luther King. I don't know if you knew that. His, his original name was Michael King. He was named after his father, who was a preacher. But his father made a trip to Germany and learned about the Reformation and really learned about Martin Luther. And as soon as he got home, he immediately changed his son's name from Michael King Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr. Just an example of how famous and influential this man was. 
Why do I bring this up? Because, because the Reformation changed the world, and, and in many ways it was started by Martin Luther, but it wasn't started by him nailing the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. For Martin Luther, the Reformation really started in his heart. It started in his heart. It started with a, a fear and dread of the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther wrote himself about the righteousness of God. His words are this, I had been captivated with a remarkable love for understanding Paul in the epistles, uh, epistle of the Romans. But up until then, it, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single saying in chapter 1, in it the righteousness of God is revealed that stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God which according to to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice, as they called it, by which God is righteous and punishes sinners, the unrighteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt as I was a sinner before God with a almost... Uh, disturbed or with a most disturbed conscience. I cannot believe that he was pleased with my life. I did not love, indeed, I hated the righteousness of God, the righteous God who punished sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God, yet I clang to the dear Paul or dear Paul with and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Martin Luther was obsessed with this idea of the righteousness of God. It, it haunted him. It brought anxiety. It, it, it brought depression. He hated this, this idea because he knew he didn't measure up to God's righteousness. He had a clear sense of his unrighteousness. And he felt completely unworthy of God's love and, and convinced that he'd be judged. There's stories of Martin Luther actually punishing his body for penance or, or spending hours in the confessional. Sometimes after hours confessing sin after sin after sin, he would leave the confessional just to have a thought that he, that he knew was sinful and turned around and went right back into the confessional. To Luther, God seemed a, a severe judge. He loved God, but he hated him at the same time. The priest, actually, it's almost funny, the priest got so sick of him confessing all the time that they made Luther go and study and teach through the book of Romans. And, and that's where he came across Romans 1, 16 through 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is the good news. I am not ashamed of the good news, for in it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For in the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. How could this be good news, Martin Luther sought? The righteousness of God is not good news to him. He meditated on this passage day and night. And after a long struggle with with bitter anguish, he looked at the context of the verse and he he read this. For in it, again, this is the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what Martin Luther said. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. In other words, through faith, God's righteousness is being revealed in his grace. He realized this is good news. Jesus died to pay the price of our sins, and those that put their faith in him will be saved and will gain what he called an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is outside of us, in other words. We are declared righteousness or righteous. As soon as you're saved, in other words, by God's grace, God looks at you as if you lived a 100% completely righteous life. Not because of works, not because of going to confession, doing penance, paying indulgences or keeping the sacraments, not because of something you did, but because of what Christ did, the perfect life he lived and his death on the cross. Luther continued, he says this, This then is the meaning of the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel with which the mercy of God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a total other face of, of, of all Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Martin Luther found in, in the study of Romans the grace of God. And it changed everything. The God who he once feared, he now loved. The God that once brought anxiety, now brought comfort. The phrase, the righteousness of God that he once hated, now brought joy. Luther, by grace, had a newfound confidence in his relationship with God. I want you to look. Look at verse, verse 28 again. I feel like sometimes we read over these passages and we're so used to just, just hearing about God's grace and being, being God's children that we, we forget what that truly means. Look what it says. And now, little children, abide in him. It's through grace that we can abide in him. It's through grace that we can have fellowship with him. So that when he appears, listen to this, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And this is an amazing verse in Scripture. How can we have confidence in front of a holy, just, righteous God? Our response should be as sinners to shrink from him in shame. Because we're sinners. But listen to what Paul says. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence at his coming. Confidence. The Greek word is parasia. It's a state of boldness or confidence in intimidating circumstances. You use an ax a lot, this word, about the apostles as they are preaching confidently and boldly or proclaiming the gospel confidently and boldly. But I want you to see how John uses it. He uses it in 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. But he also uses it in 1 John 3, 21. He says this, Behold, 
if our hearts uh, does not condemn us, we may have, have confidence before God. Or 1 John 5.14, he says this, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, we, um, he hears us. And John, John uses this word, this, this word that means confidence and boldness, to describe our relationship in front of a holy God. The author of Hebrew actually uses this word in a very similar way. And this is a verse that we... we probably all are familiar with. This is Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The help in time of need. Luther was rightly terrified of God's holiness and righteousness. He was a sinner and God was righteous. And that terrified him till... The Holy Spirit revealed to him the grace offered to him through the death of Christ. Through that grace, Luther had a confidence in his relationship with God. He, 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 Hebrews 4.16 became a reality to him. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Look at, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's just another amazing verse. I know I've said this before and I've said it a lot as I preach and I'm going to keep saying it as we go through First John and honestly I'm probably going to keep saying it as long as I preach. You're not going to understand the love of God until you understand the holiness of God. It's when you realize that God is holy and we are sinners and there's an infinite gap between us and God that you start to comprehend the love of God. That God sent his son to die on the cross so that we sinners can now boldly and confidently approach him through grace. That, that we sinners can be called children of God. Ephesians three seventeen through eighteen says this: so so that the Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend now with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God's love is beyond our understanding. I was just reading through this, and I love what one pastor said. It's like trying to comprehend God's love. is trying to, to measure the content of the ocean with a teacup. It's impossible. You're not going to do it. it. It surpasses knowledge. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love, of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. One-time enemies, now children of God. Listen, I want to be clear this morning. There's only two types of people in the world. There's only two types of people in the world, and they're both mentioned in, in verse 28. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There are those 
that are children of God that will have confidence at his coming. And there are those that are children of the devil who will shrink from him in shame. That's it. So I want to look at the characteristics of a child of God. Look at the characteristics of a child of God. There's four characteristics of a child of God in this passage. And a lot of these are going to be review because, because John is hitting the same points over and over and over again. These are signs of salvation. I want to be clear. This is not what makes you save these characteristics. These are signs that you are a new person, that you've been born again, that you are saved. And there's four signs, four characteristics of a child of God. The first one is this, that children of God seek righteousness. They seek righteousness. The phrase righteousness of God terrified Luther until he was introduced to the grace of God. And after understanding God's grace, the righteousness of God, in his own words, was this. It became inexpressibly sweet. He had a love for God's righteousness. Why? Well, look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous. Now, the Bible teaches clearly through, throughout Scripture that morality and righteousness flow from the character of God. It flows from the character of God. It's not that God just demands righteousness arbitrarily. He is righteous. God doesn't make arbitrary laws. I, mean, I think that's what our culture thinks, that there's, there's a God up there that makes all these crazy laws and just expects us to, to follow them. His righteous laws and commandments flow out of his very nature. That's what the Bible says. His righteous character. In other words, you want to know what God is like, one of the ways you can, can know what God is like is look at his commandments. Let me give you some examples. God tells us not to lie. Because he is truth. It's a characteristic of him. God tells us to be faithful in our marriage because he is faithful. God tells us to to forgive because he is merciful, he is gracious, and he's forgiving. God tells us to love, and John's going to make this very clear, because he is love. God's commandments come out of his very nature. That's why Leviticus 11.44 is so profound. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy. That's the command. He's commanding his people, be holy. And then he gives the reason why. For I am holy. That's his nature. He's commanding his nature. So I want you to follow the logic here. Okay, if you're born again, if you, if you are saved, if you, if you have a changed heart, if you're a new man, if you have a, a changed desire, a love for God because of these things... If you truly love God, you will desire righteousness because he is righteous. Therefore, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you're pursuing righteousness, it's a sign that you have a deep love for God because you're pursuing him. I want to be clear, John's not talking about perfection. He's not talking about perfection. The word practice is extremely important here. Look at what it says. It says, practices righteousness. 
This word is actually a very common word in the New Testament. It means just do or doing or one who is doing. It's the present active, uh, meaning he's someone that's actively doing or actively seeking righteousness. John's not talking about perfection. And he's already made this clear in 1 John 1, 8, where he says, if anyone says we have no sin, or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking about seeking righteousness practicing, desiring righteousness, being characterized as someone that's pursuing righteousness. This person is showing the characteristics of being a child of God. So that's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is they are sojourners, which is a word that just means foreigners or aliens. It means that this world is not our home. Look at verse 1 again, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Remember the definition of of the word world that's important here. The word world or worldliness is the evil system of a fallen world that is totally under the grips of the devil. That's what world means. And Ephesians 2 tells us that, that, that this worldliness, this world system, fills the earth like air fills the earth. It corrupts everything. And God's so different than this worldly system, worldliness, the world, that the world does not know him. It does not understand God. And because we are God's children, right? because we have his nature living within us, God the Holy Spirit even living within us, the world does not know us either. Let me give you an example. Think about how confusing this is to the world. Sunday mornings. Think about how confusing this is to the world. That, that we wake up early, and, and uh, Mike Owens is trying to get you to wake up earlier. <laughs> On a weekend. to come and, and serve one another, and, and to do that for free, too. I mean, I mean just think about this. The, the, if you have children right now, they're getting watched by people that are doing it for free, volunteering. We sing songs together to a, to a God we can't see. We sit through an hour-long monologue. I mean, who does that? And not only that, we do this weekly, and some of you are excited about it. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense to the world. I mean, think about communion, what we just did. Remembering, right, drinking a man's blood, which is actually grapefruit juice, eating, eating a man's flesh, which is cracker, and it's not truly blood or, or flesh. It's reminding us what Christ has done, how confusing that is to the world. What's that mean? What, what is that? Think about mission work. Families, men, men and women, leaving everything they know and going to countries, putting their kids in danger to share the gospel. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get our love, our devotion to the Father. The, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know Him. 
And Christianity is so confusing to the world that the first century Christianity was heavily persecuted. And they're persecuted through, through propaganda of, of the Roman government saying, saying things about them. One of the things that they said about them is that they were atheists. Can you imagine that? Christians in the first century were called atheists. You know, in our day and age, we're way too religious, but in, in that day and age, they're atheists because they didn't worship the pagan gods. They refused to worship Caesar and the pagan gods and anyone that wasn't Jesus and, and the Trinity. So they were considered atheists. They were considered incest because they called each other brothers and sisters and said they were part of one family. They were even called cannibals because they ate blood or drank blood and ate flesh. They were persecuted. They were thrown to the lions, burnt because of these things. The world did not understand them. You know what really confused them more than anything else? They had a joy and confidence in the face of death. You can read historical accounts about this. Christians were singing hymns as they were getting burned at the stake. It makes no sense to the world. I could tell you, Kathy knew it was close to the end when I visited her Friday. And she, there was just a peace in that room. There was just a peace in that room. There was a confidence she knew where she was going. Think of Skip too. It doesn't make sense. I mean, even for me, it doesn't make sense. Someone that I know, the confidence they have. This world does not know us. It's because this world is not our home. Listen, we, we have a far better home waiting for us. Amen. We are foreigners. We're aliens. We're sojourners. We're exiles in this world. I've been blessed to do a lot of traveling. I've been out of the country a lot. Been out of the country a lot this last year. Um, and every time I'm out of the country, there's a sense that, that this is not home. And for how much I love traveling, there's always just a sense this is not home. And it's uncomfortable. Even, even countries that are very similar in culture, Poland is not that far off compared to like Indonesia. When I went to Poland, it was just, you could just tell like there's uncomfortableness, how much I love the Polish people, how much I loved the trip we went on, and I was ready to come home because it's not home. I remember, I remember being in, in, a, in a gymnasium, we were playing basketball, and it was like 100 degrees outside, 100% humidity. That might not be accurate, but <laughs> it felt like that. And we're in there playing basketball, and, and all the Americans are opening up the, the windows. We were like, we need some breeze and some air. It's stuffy in here. And we open up all the windows, and the Polish people were going around shutting all the windows. And we're like, what are you doing? They're like, you're going to get sick if a breeze comes in here. I'm like, well, we're going to die if it doesn't. <laughs> Polish people even had to make us an extra meal because we just eat more as Americans. We were foreigners, right? We were sojourners. It wasn't, it wasn't our home. 1 Peter 1, 1. I love how it says this. It, it calls us, and this is kind of the theme of all of 1 Peter. It calls us elect exiles. If you, it's the ESV translation. It gets it right. It's, it, he puts these two words together. Elect exiles. Elect means chosen, right? We elect a, a president. We're chosen by God, meaning we are blessed, you guys are blessed. That's what Peter is saying. And then he calls them exiles. You're homeless. You're sojourners. You're foreigners in this world. This isn't your home. It shouldn't feel comfortable. And for the people Peter are talking about, it definitely didn't feel comfortable because they're all getting persecuted, thrown in jail, and killed. This is what First Peter 1.11 says. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your souls. Right? Stay away from the worldly things, in other words. You have a far better hope. This world's not your home. Hebrews eleven thirteen. This is I love this portion of scripture. And we, Hebrews eleven is this amazing chapter talking about all the fa- uh, faithful saints of the Old Testament, faithful saints of the Old Testament, and, and and the author of Hebrews says this in verse thirteen: These all died. These faithful saints. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, not getting the things promised in this world. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, right? this, this earth wasn't their home. For people who, who, um, who uh, spoke thus, thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of the land from which they have gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. In other words, this life wasn't their, I mean, this wasn't their home. They had hope of a better country, a heavenly one. And I, this, this is one of those phrases that, that will blow your mind. The second half of verse 16 says this, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. The third characteristic of a, a child of God is they have hope. They have hope. Verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as it is, as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him. What's that mean? Well, somehow, when, when we see him in his second coming, this is what I talk when he appears, John's talking about his second coming, we will be like him. I want to be clear, there's a, there's a mystery here, because look at verse 2, it says, what we, we will be has not yet ap- appeared. In other words, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, John is saying. But John reveals this, that when he appears, we shall be like him. And the Bible tells us there's four ways we'll be like Christ after his second coming. The first way is this. We will have physical, resurrected, glorified bodies. Second way is, is we'll be immortal. In other words, we will live forever. The third way is this. We will be completely satisfied. We will be completely joy-filled. And the fourth way, we will be sinless. We will be sinless. You know, as I've grown in my maturity... In my walk, it's this fourth way that really I'm looking forward to, to be honest. I'm looking forward to just being completely free of sin. You know, I'm tired of struggling. I'm just I'm tired of fighting temptation. I'm, I'm tired of failing. I, ju- I just want to be free from the, the bondage of sin. I'm excited to have a, a pure capacity to worship God for who he truly is. And we'll have that forever. Therefore, children of God are, are, by nature, children of hope. Children of hope. Looking forward to Jesus' second coming. And that leads us to our first, fourth characteristic. They seek purity. They seek purity. Look at verse 3. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to think about this. If you have hope in Jesus' second coming, that, that when he comes, you will be like Christ, that there's a hope that we will be like Christ when he comes. That means there's a desire to be like Christ, right? If you have a hope to be like Christ, you're desiring to be like Christ. Well, if you desire to be like Christ, you're not going to wait. You're going to pursue Christ's likeness in this life. Therefore, the hope of being like Christ is going to purify you. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. John here gives us two reasons why sinning as a Christian makes absolutely no sense. Right, the first one is this, that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And second is, in him there is no sins. He is righteous. Meaning sinning goes against Christ's works, why he came to die on the cross for our sins. And sinning goes against the very nature of Christ himself. Therefore, if you're a follower of Christ, it makes absolutely no sense to sin. But look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either seen him or know him, known him. John is clear that the person who keeps on sinning, in other words, makes a practice of sin, who is characterized by sin, is not a child of God, but instead a child of the devil. Again, I want to make it clear that John's not talking about perfection talking about a pursuit, a desire. We're going to look at that next week, the children of the devil. But I want to end with a question, because First John really challenges us where we're at with the Lord, right? So I want to end with a question this morning. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If your answer right away is no, I, I'm not, or I don't know where I'm at with the Lord, listen, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent, that, that word just means turn from your sins, turn away from, from your life of sin and turn to God and trust him. And believe means put your faith in Christ that, that he has come. Jesus, the son of God, has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins trust in that. And he, he was raised on the third day as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And follow him. If you answer that question, are you a Christian? If your answer is this, Nathan, I, I'm not sure now. <laughs> you read First John, I'm not sure because I have this sin in my life that I'm not, I'm not willing to let go. Listen. Repent and believe. Repent. Turn away from that sin. Turn to God. Trust in him. Believe that Jesus has paid the price for that sin. And you can have confidence. And if you answer confidently, yes, I'm a Christian, not because of anything I have done, but because of Christ's works, what he's done on the cross, because of the grace offered to me, I am a Christian and I I am confident in that. Listen, pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness because that's who God is. 
He is righteous. I'm going to end where we started with uh, Michael reading from Second Peter 1, 5 through 10. I want you to turn there. I want you guys to see this. Second Peter, we'll end just by reading this passage. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It says this, For this very reason, make every effort to, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, as a church and as me as a pastor, as me as just a Christian and a follower of you, Christ, that I never forget how amazing it is that I am saved, Lord. That a holy, righteous God would love me, love me enough to send, send his son to die on the cross for my sins, to pay the price I deserve to pay. And not only that, to, to declare me righteous, Lord, when, when, when I'm not, but to, 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 to declare me righteous and to adopt me into your family. I pray that we never get tired of hearing about that, Lord. God, I pray that that is the motivation for our pursuit of righteousness. Lord, that you're our Father and you're so good to us that we can trust you, that when you say don't do something or do something, it's, an, it's not some arbitrary law, but it's, it's for our good. That there is joy on the other end of obedience, Lord. And there might be hard times going through this life and going through when we obey, Lord, and, and leave everything and do things that are uncomfortable. But on the other end of obedience, there is always joy in our relationship with you, Lord. Help us to be motivated by that joy. God, I pray as we go through First John, Lord, that we continue to remind ourselves, Lord, that we are pursuing you because you are good. You are love, and you are righteous, Lord. Be with us. Be with us as a church, Lord. I pray that we grow in our holiness and righteousness as a congregation, God, that we grow in our, our brotherly affection and love for each other, Lord, and that we shine your glory to this community through those things. Thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning in your son's name. Amen.